Welcome back, everyone, to the Ranking Presidents Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper, and I'm itching to do some ranking today. I am, too. So we're coming down off the high of Andrew Jackson, who was an interesting guy. To say the least. Yeah, to say the least. So just to give everyone a reminder of where our current ranking's at, we got number one, James Monroe, number two, George Washington, number three, Thomas Jefferson, number four, John Quincy Adams, number five, James Madison, and number six, Number six, John Adams. Six, John Adams, yep, and number seven, Andrew Jackson. We should probably write these down. Yeah, we need to write <laughs> these down, because I'm like, these names are all starting to run together. One starts, name starts with a J. Well, when you get into like a big quote, I'll write them all down. Oh, yeah. So, but we're moving on from Andrew Jackson to a man by the name of Martin Van Buren. A man who is pretty much only known by the fact he had ridiculous sideburns. Yep, he had some gnarly sideburns. Now, Brad, did you know anything about this guy? No, not at all. I didn't either. I don't even remember what I memorized about him in AP U.S. history. Yeah. He's kind of like, it's similar, he's sort of similar to Taft. People only remember him for his appearance. Yep. Yeah. Pretty much. Which is... That kind of sucks because there are some very important and interesting things that happened during the presidency oh, yeah. in his life. A lot of it was holdover from, like, Jackson policy, too. Yep. So, Curtis, can you tell us a little bit about who Martin Van Buren was? All right, so let's, let's break down where this guy's coming from. So, he was actually the son of Dutch immigrants. Interesting. And while um, he was... His parents, his dad was a uh, soldier in the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, Martin himself was not born during the American Revolution. He was born afterwards. So the first president that wasn't born during the Revolution. The first natural-born citizen of America as president. The son of the Patriots. Sons of the Patriots. Now, his father, Abraham Van Buren, served in the Revolution... Right. He owned a tavern in Kinderhook, New York. So these, these were New York folks. Mm-hmm. A big immigrant uh, town at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Van Buren kind of got some of his early political like exposure by all the people who would like come through the tavern, like including like Alexander Hamilton. Like, he got to lay eyes on him. You're like, oh, wow, a small world. That, that's really interesting because you think of these people as being big celebrities, but these people would literally come through the taverns and you could see them. Yep. That's, yeah. that's really interesting. It, they weren't like these distant like TV personalities like we think of our political leaders today. Yeah. So in terms of education, he completed regular school by age 13. He was, he was mm. a smart young guy, even mm. despite the fact that like his parents kind of had to like make ends meet and like scrape enough money together to help him through school. Right. Um, because like Jackson, he had a very humble upbringing, not as wild as Jackson's, but still. Yeah, um, he, he didn't. He, as far as he didn't kill a man, as far as we knew, yeah. or many men. <laughs> as, uh, yeah, as far as we know. And uh, by age twenty-one, he became an att- he became a to turn not to turny attorney attorney <laughs> to turn to <laughs> And unlike most of the presidents up to this point. Van Buren was a very successful attorney. <laughs> he did not suck as being an attorney. It's hilarious, because so many of them were attorneys just like, well, this sucks, I'm going to go ahead and be a politician. <laughs> now, his clients included the tenants and renters who contested landlords' colonial-era claims to property in New York's Hudson Valley. Interesting. So, from very like early on in his career, Van Buren fashioned himself as a defender of the common man. Yeah, much like the old Jackson Yep, no wonder they got along. Now, I will touch a little bit on his early politics. I know that you'll get into that. But Mm -hmm. uh, one specific fun story was that he was 
After um, he served as a stint as a lawyer, he kind of started getting into the New York political scheme. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started defeating opponents, like, consistently. And right. a lot of them were really wealthy, and he himself was not. Mm. So he was he was basically a giant slayer. Mm. But but because of his small five-foot-six stature, <laughs> his opponents labeled him the Little Magician. <laughs> little Magician. <laughs> like, just imagine with a little magic wand. <laughs> just be like, gone, wink. <laughs> just like, oh, poor Barton. Yep. Mm-hmm. He, but he, uh, he took down the wealthy people, so... So yeah, that was kind of like some background in terms of him. Um, let's talk a little bit about his personality. Mm-hmm. Now, as we're beginning to like change political eras in America, we're starting to get to some more outspoken presidents. Right. And Van Buren was said to speak rapidly, mm. <laughs> but clearly. That's interesting, because we went from all these presidents who were essentially yeah. introverts or yeah. socially awkward to now we're getting into some real like dynamic politicians. <laughs> yeah, you, you had you had Washington who could carry on a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the guys who were like nerds. Yeah. And yeah. then Jackson who was like swinging from the rafters, drinking with his buddies. Yeah, exactly. And so Van Buren was known to revert to a slight Dutch accent when he became excited. Mm, I wonder so, if that caused him some trouble. So this is very much like, obviously, this early in America, technically everyone was like the son of an immigrant. But like, yeah. Martin Van Buren was truly like the first new wave of like immigrant sons that mm. were like notable in in American politics. Yes, yeah. and accents are interesting. Like, obviously, we haven't researched this, but it'd be interesting if someone has studied, like, early American accents, because I bet they're all radically different. Oh, yeah. Because these so, are all different. People come from different countries and different regions. People thought of states more as a country than uh-huh. a country. So. Yeah, like, there. I, I bet you a bunch of people from different states had no idea what each other, what each other were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another personality trait of Van Buren was he was actually very optimistic and cheerful. Like mm. I feel like we've kind of gotten this sense that presidents as a whole up to this point were kind of grim, like, serious dudes. Yeah, somber. Yeah, somber. But uh, Van Buren was actually, like, very, like, cheerful and happy, and he was thought of as a great party guest, and mm. people, like, loved to have him at parties. Yeah. And he loved having conversations with people. Now, while he loved to talk... He kept his personal and political beliefs close to his chest. Ah. Even political ones. He preferred to let others talk about specific issues rather than his own. Mm. And one colleague even described him as rowing to his object with muffled oars. Muffled <laughs> oars. I like that. So he's very almost like waits his time. Yeah. yeah. His time. He, he was very calculating in what he actually said. And uh, I, I thought that was interesting. Um mm-hmm. And he spoke cautiously, leaving his true political views fairly vague most of the time. Mm. So in terms of personality, I thought that he best exhibited the three personality type. Mm. So he keeps up a match, in other words. Yeah, because threes are very people-oriented, but at the same time, like, they also are, like, good at, like, compartmentalizing all of their Mm. beliefs. Right. To, like, to present a, a common, like... Allied front, basically. Yeah. And that's your anagram type, is it right? Yep, that's me. Awesome. Be careful, threes. Get to know yourselves or else you'll put up a mask. Yeah, it happens. So in terms of religion, I could not find much other than he, in his early life, belonged to the Christian Dutch Reformed Church. Okay. That sounds like it was more of a national thing and than it was. He wasn't really super serious about yeah. reading into it, mm-hmm. if I had to make a prediction. Now, in terms of his love life... So when I read, we obviously talked about the story last week of how Jackson and Van Buren got close in the mm-hmm. presidency and how 
Van, Van Buren stood up for this woman's reputation, who was yeah. another wife of a member of the cabinet. Yeah, and it was like this whole situation where she had supposedly left her husband, her husband committed suicide. It, it was a mess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the text that I mentioned, that I read mentioned that Van Buren was single at that moment mm-hmm. when he was Secretary of State. And I just assumed when I looked, when I was doing the research on Van Buren, that he got married later. Right. But no. He got married earlier, and his wife passed away. Oh, I see. So, he married a woman by the name of Hannah Hose Van Buren. Okay. And they got married in 1807. Mm-hmm. Van Buren had actually known her all of his life. Interesting. So, a childhood friend. Mm-hmm. They had four children together, one of which was named Abraham after his father. Mm. And in 1819, she fell ill with tuberculosis and died shortly thereafter. And it's a no wonder that, like, Jackson loved this man. Because, mm. like, who could better understand, like, losing, like, the love of your life like Jackson could? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, Van Buren, like, this was his childhood best friend, effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very, very intriguing. Do you have anything else you can add to him? And uh, Martin never remarried. Hmm, so much like Andrew Jackson. Yeah, his, I believe his daughter-in-law served as the first lady during his one mm-hmm. term. And I remember reading that he had quite a few children as well. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's very interesting. Did you have anything else to add about nope. his personality? That, that's pretty much it. Yeah, this, from what you were telling me, there's not as much information about that, because he's more of a political animal. Yeah. So that's very interesting. So we're going to get into his policy for a minute. So Martin Van Buren might be our first political party man. He was mm-hmm. really into parties. Yep. Now, at his beginnings, he was defined by a love for the Jeffersonians, and he considered himself a disciple of Thomas Jefferson's views. Agrarianism. Yeah. It's interesting. We keep on running into this. You're either, if you're a politician in America, you're either kind of like Thomas Jefferson, or you're more Hamilton and Adams. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of Washington, because yeah. he was totally a Federalist. Yep. Now, you mentioned he would help the renters, and that gave him sort of this man-of-the-people ideology. Now, where he was in, in Hudson Valley, New York, Federalists reigned, but Buren joined the Democratic-Republicans because of his father and his friends were Jeffersonians. But this alienated with Federalist judges and lawyers, who really, really had a lot of power. Mm-hmm. This early alignment set him on the stage for loving limited government, individual liberties, and states' rights. And there's actually one contest he got involved in. That was when Aaron Burr, that guy who shot Hamilton, yep. and a guy by the name of DeWitt Clinton dueled for his political allegiance. Ooh. And he chose DeWitt as he saw Burr as essentially he was a failure. As a result, DeWitt gave Van Buren a county's official post in 1808. But for this reason, many early critics saw him as devious and conniving. Mm. And he 18... was a politician through and through. Yes. In 1812, he won a half he, he won a victory over a Federalist. He got a victory over a Federalist to win a seat for the New York State Senate. But he was concerned when he saw rivalries in his Democratic-Republican Party, which he thought would give Federalists the edge over them. He thought they should unite under their main principles. But while he did this, he was part of his own faction, known as the Bucktails. Oh, the Bucktails. Let's go. So the Bucktails were like a faction within the Democratic Republicans. Because by this point, the Federalists, they were still around, but they were really dying off as a party. Yep. So then Democratic Republicans used to form factions. So the Bucktails were known that way because they wore deer tails on their hats. Why do they do this? <laughs> just because. Look fancy, I guess. I miss, we should have political parties that are defined by just random clothing objects. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
So what's funny about them is that the Bucktails hated the DeWitt Clinton, who we just mentioned, huh. who they found did not vouch over so many ideals and principles and limited federal government. And for a while, Buren got the position of the Attorney General of New York for two years, but the Clintons beat him back. So Van Buren, even though he'd support Clinton initially, he mm-hmm. came to fight Clinton for control of local New York politics. Oh, how allegiances change. Yep. This didn't slow Buren down. Instead, he won the election to the Senate itself in 1821, because previously he was just part of the state Senate. He also started up his own party machine, which his enemies called the Albany Regency. (laughs) (laughs) So this is our first, like, truly political party-oriented president. Now, in the Senate, he tried to bridge the gap between the various Democratic Republicans, but to little effect. He also, during the election of 1824, threw his support behind William Crawford, only for him to lose to old John Quincy Adams. Hmm. Now, Buren did not like John Quincy Adams. He saw him as a Federalist who wanted to boost federal power. Which he did. Yeah, exactly. As a result, he decided, hey, this Andrew Jackson guy seems pretty cool. So he joined up with him and started the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is, in the election of 1828, he briefly, he won the position of governor of New York, but he resigned because Jackson called him like, hey, want to be secretary of state? He's like, yeah. yes. So, oh, well, he was, he was a real big fan of Jackson. Now, during Jackson's presidency, infighting was constant. Van Buren went toe-to-toe with John C. Calhoun. And, as you mentioned, he earned Jackson's favor of taking the side of Peggy and John Eaton during that whole situation. The Eaton Affair. Now, during the nullification crisis, and that was when South Carolina tried to nullify state laws, Jackson formed a kitchen cabinet of advisors, which Buren was a part of. Van Buren had worked hard to build up kind of a Jacksonian alliance, but he'd also unwittingly helped create an opposition party, the Whigs, that wanted to break him. So the Whigs literally started out as an anti-Buren party? Yes, like anti-Buren and Jackson. That's incredible. For him trying to coalesce a Jacksonian coalition, that also gave leeway for them to form their own coalition. Mm. Now, in domestic, let's get into his domestic policy a little bit. He sent his inaugural address, and receiving from the people the sacred trust twice confided to my illustrious predecessor, <laughs> and which he has so discharged so faithfully and so well, I know that I cannot expect to perform the arduous tasks with equal ability and success, but I hope that somewhat of the same cheering approbation will be found to attend upon my path. He would. I will tread generally in the footsteps of President Jackson. Oh man, he so, loves him some Jackson. So this this is kind of what we see a lot. There are presidents that sort of follow presidents that sort of consider themselves almost like the successors. They're like, I'm just going to be just like them. Four more years of the, of him. Mm-hmm. Now his domestic policy was immediately tackled with an economic depression, the Panic of 1837, because he won in 1836. Gotcha. Now, this panic was caused by English banks stopped pumping money into the U.S. economy. The U.S. banks began to call in loans, and Jackson's special circular only made the credit crunch worse. That was where he said you had to have backed gold for loans and stuff like that. He hated the bank. So, during the crisis, loans dried up, state banks refused to convert paper money to gold and silver, employment skyrocketed, and creditors refused to take paper money. So, the currency is getting devalued as well. Oh, no. And a lot of this was caused by Jackson's bank wars, because he really, like, he really caused some issues and chaos, which sent the U.S. economy tumbling. Way to screw America, Jackson. Yep. Now, Buren said, well, the problem is greedy businesses and financial institutions like the bank, and overextension of credit. <laughs> you know, being... As my Lord Jackson once said. 
Now, Buren being states' rights, he called for an independent treasury system in which federal governments would deposit SPUDs in a series of sub-realties. He, re he believed this would help stabilize the financial system by making it so irresponsible state banks couldn't access federal funds. F funny enough, this was actually a reversal of Jackson's policy, where Jackson tried to pull the federal deposits out of the, s the big banks and put them in the small banks. Huh. Now, he got a, as a result of this, he got attacked on two ends. The Democrats hated federal banks attacked him, and the Whigs attacked it because he didn't recharter the National Bank, which they said was just what the country needed. Now, Congress didn't pass this Treasury Bill of his until 1840, and the Depression was still going on. In other news, this we get some funny stuff. Buren, well, not funny stuff yet, but later. Buren also had to deal with Texan annexation. At first, he said he didn't support it due to concerns over territorial expansion and slavery because it was a big issue, so mm, kick yep. that ball down the court. Yep, as all of them will do until, like, Lincoln. Yep, and we got to get into some really unfortunate stuff. So, much like Jackson, he was very cruel against the Native Americans when it came to policy. I mean, he was the one who actually enacted the Removal Act, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Yep, and he argued for more Removal Acts. Oh, gosh. Now, the federal government then, as a result, moved in to remove the Cherokees in full in 1838. And this event led to the death of the of a quarter of the entire nation. So, Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Wow. Yeah. Probably as a result of disease and just forcing them to march and all that stuff. That's genocide. Yeah. He also engaged in a war against the Seminole people in Florida, which led to the deaths of thousands. The Whigs criticized Van Buren for this bloody war, as well as some Americans who saw these Native American removal acts as being inhumane, as they are. Yeah. Now let's get into foreign policy, because th th this is where the funny stuff happens, you know, coming down from all that really bad stuff. Mm -hmm. He had to deal with another crisis, which is a big diplomatic crisis with Britain. So a separatist movement in Canada was aiming to claim independence. So they're like, hey, you know, the United States is free. We should be able to be free. So, when this failed, they went to the United States and recruited American citizens, and they settled in on an island in the border of the U.S. and Canada in the middle of the Niagara River. What? So they're just off in the Niagara River, and Americans then began selling them guns and supplies. The British ordered loyal Canadian forces to attack the ships that supports the rebels. These Canadian forces then boarded an American ship called the Carolina, and set it on fire and pushed it over the Niagara Falls and killed one American. Wow. As a result, one British ship was burned in retaliation, and Americans called for war with Britain. Again. <laughs> Buren didn't want war, so he sent a guy by the name of General Winfield Scott on a tour to calm people down. And he also got Congress to endorse a neutrality act. But then things would heat up again over a different issue. Oh, no. There was a borders dispute that happened in Maine and Canada. And I'll tell a little bit more of this when I get his actual term, but... British troops were removing settlers who were setting in land technically claimed by both countries. Van Buren once again sent his friend, General Scott, to Maine to rein in the governor, John Farfield, who wanted war. At the same time, these actions enraged people in Maine and New York, who thought he should have taken a harder stance and not been so conciliatory with Britain. Hmm. And that would actually lead them, in 1840, these states would join to vote for old, our Indiana boy, who will be coming up next, mm. William Henry Harrison. So, we're going to start a new segment here before I get into his term called State of the Nation. Tell me about what this State of the Nation means for our podcast. Okay, so we talk a lot about presidents, but we really, we also need to take a look at some of the other events that are going on that aren't necessarily related to the presidency that tell us what is the nation like at this point? Like, what are some of the big stuff that's going on? Yeah, like a measuring stick for where yeah. we are. So, let's start with tech, some technology news. Let's do on. it. 
1837, a guy named Thomas Davenport got a patent for the first electrical motor, which he would use to print newspapers in 1840. Also a guy by the name of Samuel Morse first demonstrated the telegram technology in 1838, and he'd get a patent for it in 1840. Hmm. Now let's move on to religion and slavery news. So in religion news, in 1838, the Missouri governor Lilburn Boggs, that's the name, Boggs, issued an order expelling all Mormons from Missouri. Get out of here, Mormons. So the reason for this, this was due to tension with local settlers, since more, Mormons tended to come from free states, and you know, slave state Missouri didn't like that. Just weren't weren't Mormons abolitionists? Uh, that's complicated. Oh no. <laughs> oh, they. Tend- I just opened a can of beans. Yeah, that's it's. I don't want to get into it, but let's just say their theology tended to be super racist. And leave it Yikes! At that. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, we'll leave it at that for now. Maybe in a religion podcast we'll talk a little <laughs> bit more. They also proselytized among Native Americans, since they believed the Israelites were Native American. The Native Americans were Israelites. That's one of their beliefs. Huh. And they believed that they would one day inherit everyone else's property. And they often dominated local economies, because they're all part of one religion, so they all kind of act as a group. Hmm. In slavery news, a guy by the name of Frederick Douglass boarded a train for the North to Freedom with a borrowed sailor's uniform and forged freedom papers. He made it to Philadelphia, a Quaker and abolitionist stronghold, and began free. Became free. He would later become a big figure in the abolitionist movement. Hmm. And lastly, in 1837, an abolitionist Presbyterian minister and publisher, Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, was killed by an angry mob in his warehouse in Alton, Illinois, where he stored his abolitionist literature. John Quincy Adams would say the murder gave a shock as of an earthquake throughout this country. Hmm. And the Boston Report said that these events called forth from every part of the land a burst of indignation, which had not had its peril in the country since the Battle of Lexington. And when informed at a meeting about the murder, a guy named John Brown said, Oh, man. Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses from this time, I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. Things are a-changing. Yeah, things are a-changing. Whether the presidents want to acknowledge it or not. <laughs> yeah, things are really heating up. So, let's get into his first, his only term. So, like I said, he was the successor to Jackson, and that much was clear from him being his VP. So, unlike how um, James Monroe didn't really set up a successor, Jackson did. So, the Democratic Party rallied around him easily. The Whigs, meanwhile, during the election, were still forming. He couldn't find a way to challenge him. So they ran three candidates, Tennessee Senator Hugh White, Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, and William Henry Harrison, who was a senator in Ohio. Ah, uh, the Harrison. Now, Van Buren beat this ragtag group easily, because, you know, they split the vote. Yeah, exactly. Of course gonna <laughs> Do people not know what, how math works back Yeah. Then? He had good political qualities, and he had the popular Jackson's endorsements. However, his margins were slower. He'd only won 170 electoral votes, and he'd lost a few Midwestern and Southern states. This showed the Whigs were starting to gain power. Was this the first election that the Whigs participated in? Yes, yes. Now, immediately during his presidency, the panic began. Depression in England also caused the price of cotton to drop, which hurts the southern economy. Now, Buren, he maintained a laissez-faire attitude towards the actual Depression. He was like, let's not get involved. Oh, no. Yeah, because literally that thing I told you about earlier, that Treasury Act, that's the only thing he did. That is it. Seriously? Yes. Oh, no. Yes. Now, I could be wrong. You correct me, investors. I'm wrong. But he took a very much like, I mean, small government. <laughs> we we do nothing. Yeah, we do nothing. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about that war that borders between Maine and Canada, because this was known as the Aroostook War, 
which actually began by lumberjacks disagreeing <laughs> on who owned trees in the Aroostook Valley. Seriously? I've never even heard of this one. Yeah. Now, the reason this had caused is because the Treaty of Paris in 1783, you know, the one that ended the Revolutionary War, Yep. it had used inaccurate maps to draw up what the borders of the country. <laughs> so, technically, both of the maps kind of had this region within both America and Canadian soil. Wow. So the governor Maine had sent in troops, and the situation was bad. But Buren was able to get under control. Although the issue when the territory wouldn't get fully settled until old Webster signed a treaty in 1842. And I found a picture of this of just two lumberjacks just attacking each other with axes, and I found that hilarious. <laughs> now, another thing Buren had to deal with is in 1839, there was the Armistead, Armistead situation. We talked a little bit about this with John Quincy Adams, but just to review. West African slaves had taken over slave ships and sailed up the coastline. Buren argued that property that these property disputes should be handled by the executive ranks, and the U.S. should uphold the Treaty of 1795, where if ships stranded am- abroad remain under the jurisdiction of the original nation, so he argued it should be returned to Cuba along with its occupants. That would mean, in theory, they'd be sold as slaves. Yeah, literally. So, but old John Quincy Adams fought back, and the Supreme Court rules this treaty only concerned ship itself, not slaves. So slaves go back to Africa as freemen. Now, finally, in 1840, the election where Van Buren would lose, we had saw the largest election turnout in America's history. Really now? Yes. Because here's my theory. I think it's just because the fact people were sick of Buren not doing anything. Yeah. And they were sick of, like, Buren just being, you know, the same old Democrat, same old stuff. Like, yeah, literally like a, a muted Jackson. Yeah, a muted Jackson who wasn't answering what the country needed. And during crises, he was... Like, he wanted to avoid war, ultimately, but he really, he was more so conciliatory. He didn't really answer their concerns, like, of all these territorial disputes. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't really strong on anything. Yeah. So he lost badly to William Henry Harrison. He only got 60 electoral votes. Wow. He was defeated by his lackluster response to the panic, his conciliatory attitude towards the British, as well as opposition from Southern groups who wanted to annex Texas, and he said no. So, really, he was very ineffective at almost all all aspects as far as America was concerned. Mm-hmm. So, that's all I had for Van Buren, you know. There's not as much to say about him as some of the others, but... So, throughout your studies, did you find much about what he thought about slavery, like himself? I, I did not as much. Did you find anything? Because, like, um, so, despite the fact that his family was poor, I read that they did own six enslaved workers. Okay. Um, and I believe that during the Van Buren presidency, there were enslaved laborers at the Capitol. Not surprising. So not surprising, but, uh, it, it seemed like it was more of, it was more of like the Washington attitude where like, like he didn't necessarily like, like slavery, but he didn't really do anything to like yeah. curtail it either. Yeah. Kind of back to that original like in, impulse they had. Yeah. And it, well, it seemed like with the, that case, that Supreme Court case, he seemed much more pro-slavery. Yeah, yeah. And and obviously he was, like, pro-Native American removal, so that's awful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's... He seemed very, very just lackluster, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. I think this sort of shows a little bit of a precedent where if a president comes after someone who makes a big impact and they say, oh, I'm going to be more of the same... A lot of times they end up being pretty lackluster yeah. as far as like their overall presidency. Because they don't stand out. They don't really appear to have any ideas of their own. Yeah. And they're just trying to like kind of like coast along the fumes of uh, the previous president. Yeah. Do you think part of that was also his personality? The fact he 
held his political opinions so close to his chest, he didn't really have a vision for yeah. America. The, the guy refused to say anything of note, honestly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he, he, like in his inaugural address, he just mentioned Jackson a bunch. And it's like, <laughs> dude, tell us what you're going to do. Tell us what you believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's generally a good rule of life. Of don't, don't base all of your success on just what the person you admire really love to do. Yep. Yeah. But that brings us to the question of where he ranks. And... All right, let's open the curtain a little bit and, yeah. and talk about this. Yeah, Cause, let's, yeah. Because I feel like it's pretty obvious that Van Buren's seven or eight. Yeah. At least for me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's obvious. So the question is, is the fact that Jackson did more, does that put him above him? Despite the fact that Jackson enacted a lot of the heinous stuff that Van Buren finished. Right. So I was thinking about this. So... My argument would be, I put him below Jackson for this reason. Jackson was obviously horrible, but he was effective in some ways. He had a, he had more, he had, I mean not effective, but he had more of a vision of what he wanted to do. So when you combine someone who does more heinous stuff, and it's also super militose and just can't get anything done and just mishandles everything, I have to, I put him at the bottom. And because like, I was telling you this. Like, we're probably going to run into some more presidents who were just as pro-slavery as Jackson and probably were just as bad at Native American rights, but also less effective, too. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you make a good point. What What about you? What, what, what's your thoughts? On yeah, like, it, it's kind of like comparing, like, both of their presidencies were, like, disasters. But, mm-hmm. like, at least one of them was, like, an interesting disaster versus, like, just a, like you said, a milquetoast disaster. Yeah. And there's also the fact, like... For as bad as Jackson was, he did set a precedent, and that precedent was the president being a very key figure. Yeah, a powerful figure. Yeah, and if I'm willing to look through into the future, I bet that's probably going to help people like Abraham Lincoln down the road. True, true. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I can go along with this, uh, this Van Buren being at the bottom type thing. Yeah, so Van Buren, bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so this has obviously been a little bit... Shorter of an episode because, yeah. you know, there's just not that much to talk about. But next week we're going to have a very interesting episode. I want to I wanna talk a little bit about this because we're going to be discussing a president, William Henry Harrison, who really didn't have a term because he nope. died. He died one month in. Yeah. So, Curtis, with your approval, I suggest we're going to rank him not based so much because we, we can't really just automatically put him at the bottom just because he's dead. Yeah. We're going to have to rank him based on what he did before he became president and what his vision for the yeah, country yeah. was in his inauguration. That, that's, what I, uh, that's what I think. Because, like, we need to rank him based off of what kind of president do we think he could have turned into? Yeah, because when you look at someone's inauguration address, a lot of times it doesn't become true. But it also, like, it's setting the tone for what they plan to do. Like, mm-hmm. John Quincy Adams was like, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do a lot of infrastructure stuff. And that's what he tried to do. Yeah. And Mark Van Buren said, oh, I'm just going to try to be following the footsteps of Jackson. And that's what he did. Yep. Yeah. So. And, I, and with Harrison, like, we, we're experiencing, like, a big ideological shift. Because this is the first, like, non-Democrat slash Democratic-Republican president since, oh, John... John Adams? Yeah, and John, technically, I guess technically John Quincy Adams, but well, even even he was John, Democratic John Quincy, Republican. yeah. John Quincy was Democratic Republican. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. And another weird thing is, this is the last president until we get to Lincoln who will have actually lost a re-election bid. 
Everyone else either died or refused to run again until we get to Lincoln. <laughs> Man, the, like, from like... Okay, like, what what year are we at? We're, we ended Van Buren's in... 1841. In 18, yeah. So, like, from like 1828... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because 28... Was 28 the first Jackson presidency? Yes, yes. From like 28 to like... 61. 61. It was just a disaster. I know. <laughs> like, not even just the presidency. Just America in general was a disaster. And obviously, like, post-Civil War it was a disaster too. But, like, different kind of disaster. Yeah. Because this is where the issue of slavery becomes something that he will not go away. Yeah, it won't die. Yeah. So, that's going to be interesting. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Once again, I'm Bradley Cooper. Oh, wait. Oh, you got one more thing? Uh, yeah, we have a, we have a post credit scene here. Uh, um, what you got? I have a surprise discussion topic that I wanted Ooh, to breach for oh, for okay. just just like five minutes. That'll or That'll so. be good. We can keep this episode going a little longer. Yeah, we we gotta we gotta pat it out somehow. Mm-hmm. So um, the viewers have been with us for eight episodes now, mm-hmm. and we've talked a lot about presidents. We've we've kind of like sprinkled in a few of our own opinions here and there, but. I feel like it would be good if the listeners kind of got to know our own personal opinions and views on things in the context of, like, political history and, like, our own Ooh, political ideology. Yeah, that, that sounds And like a great I figured idea. that I would start at the end of every episode now kind of taking something that we drew from a president and extrapolating that into a political topic. Ooh, to discuss. I, I like that. So, so not one. We're t- we're airing two new segments. Yep, two new sex. State of the nation and what do you want to call this? Um, hmm. How about let's see. I mean, it can't just be discussion topic because that's no. lame. Hmm. How about uh, how about the final caucus? Oh, I like that. <laughs> State of the nation, the final caucus. All right, what you got for our final caucus? All right. So for today's final caucus, I could say that like seven more times. Um, <laughs> The question is, because Van Buren dealt with a recession, depression, Mm -hmm. how much duty does a government have to help its people through an economic depression? Ooh, see, that's incredibly relevant because if you keep up in the news, there's been a bit of a fight about stimulus checks right now. Yep. And, And as we stand right now, the... The uh, American Rescue Plan is going through the Senate, or is it already cleared the Senate? Um, as far as I can tell, the news cycle, the Senate is still debating it. Okay. I'll probably look down my phone right away and be like, <laughs> oh, they passed it. Because the, the House passed it. Yes, House passed it. So it's going through the Senate, and it's going to have to go back to the House after they pass it or whatever, and then Biden has to sign it or veto yeah. it. So my opinion is the nation as a whole, does better when its people are of better economic status. You know, they have money to spend. They're investing it back in the economy. They're not starving. You know, they're not out in the streets or anything like that. So I think, I believe a nation, especially a representative government, a representative government where they are beholden to the people, as the Jacksonian ideas believe, because Jackson mm-hmm. believed, as a president, I am beholden to the people. Yeah. The government is beholden to at least find some way to care about the well-being of its citizens. Now, there are a number of ways to do that. My opinion is that during an economic depression, that is not the time to be telling people, oh, you just need to go back to work harder, or oh, well, we can't boost the federal deficit. Because for me, those, not to get into too off topic, but the federal deficit argument is always bad because it's always used when it's about something about helping other people. It's never used when like, oh, let's do a huge tax cut. 
Yeah, exactly. For because like the, the wealthy, whole, the whole like federal deficit argument is honestly just a red herring anyway. Yeah, it is. Like it, it, it's like that number in and of itself is kind of just a weird ephemeral number, kind of like just the stock market where you're just yeah. like, well, I mean, it's not like people are actually changing money every time. Yeah, it's a lot of it's ideological. Yeah, and to use an example of this current condition we're in, we're at we're in a pandemic, obviously. Now there's a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine and stuff like that, but. During a pandemic where you want people to, like, stay at home if possible, you know, not to not go out too much, you can't expect people to do that when the government isn't providing aid to meet their daily needs. Because mm-hmm. that, that was the whole big thing. Like, there was all these shutdowns, and now all of a sudden, everyone's out of work, so what are they going to do? They can't stay at home. They're going to lose their home. Yeah, because it's like, either either you work and... Try try not to get sick, or you stay home and lose your house. Yeah, exactly. It's, but that's so. My opinion: the government does have a duty to its people. What What do you think, though? Yeah, and uh, before before I answer, I want to uh, add, add another little wrinkle into this and say, at this point in 1840, mm-hmm. what political party does Brad Cooper belong to? The Whigs mm. or the Democrats? That's a very interesting question because I get the sense the Whigs are a little bit more elitist. Like I really get yeah, that sense, and they're not—they're not necessarily like super duper anti-slavery. Like that's included maybe in their coalition, but they yeah. also include some southern states. But for me, the Democratic Party is just like, yeah, it's the party of the people, but I mean, it's, it's the party of the rich landowning people. Yes, the rich landowning people, and maybe some like mid. Probably the middle class didn't exist back then. It's middle class Mid-tier. white. White male Americans. Yeah. Based on all that, I would I would probably be a Whig. And here, here's another thing. Curtis, when you to go back in time a little bit, when you would first read about Thomas Jefferson versus the Federalists as a kid, did you identify more with sort of the Democratic Republican Jeffersons or the Federalists? Oh, Federalists all the way. Interesting. Because when I was young, I identified more with the Democratic Republicans. Ooh, interesting. Because I was like, well, I mean, they care more about, you know, individual liberty and, you know, leaving us alone and, you know, all this mm-hmm. idea, all these strong, like, American freedom ideas. Jefferson would probably be a libertarian in our modern day. Yeah. But as I got older, I'm like, eh, I don't really like that, those politics. And as we studied it, I'm like, I definitely find myself to be a Federalist. Oh, now, yeah. I don't agree with, like, all their more, like, oh, the people are dirty. They can't yeah, involve yeah. with politics. And, like, uh, it, a lot of the Federalist ideas kind of gave us, like, nonsense, like the Electoral College. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, like, oh, yeah, we're going to take the actual right to, like, select your representatives, like, out of the hands of the people. Not representatives, because those are direct vote, but, like, yeah. senators and... Yeah, and presidents. Yeah, and stuff senators like that. and presidents. And they also did nonsense, like, his Alien and Sedition Acts. Yeah, yeah. It really does seem like there's an argument that runs throughout American history between limited government and federal power. But the thing is, both of those views are almost always held in bad faith, too. Yeah. Because, like, states' rights to what? To own people? Yeah. To literally, like, own people and enact atrocities against them. Yeah. Federal power to what? To make it sure we can't elect our representatives directly? <laughs> like, it's weird, but... So... Yeah, I, th- I think I would I would probably identify as a Whig back yeah. in, like, 1840. Yeah. Um, and now to circle back, I don't want to pull a Van Buren and not answer my own question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that in my in my eyes, like going back to like that whole Federalist idea, I think it's ultimately 
It's ultimately the government's duty to serve the people, not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Like, obviously there has to be, like, some semblance of, like, order. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, the government has to be equipped in order to govern. Yes. And in order to effectively govern, you can't have just a bunch of people, like, running around, like, doing their own things, like, 100% of the time. Yeah. And that's where I think Andrew Jackson's ideology of states' rights run headlong to South Carolina's, you know, wanting to nullify state laws. Yeah, like, we, we literally saw the hypocrisy of, like, the states' rights, like, ideology within Jackson's presidency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the the very fact the nation even has a constitution, because they realize the Articles of Confederation couldn't do anything. Yeah. And we've seen that in other places in history, too, when, like, centralized power is completely broken down, you just have a lot of these independent city-states, like, nothing really gets done. Yeah, and, like, eventually the nation just gets invaded because the invaders can just pick off city by city and there's no unification. Yeah, exactly. But that, that was a really interesting question. Thanks for bringing that up. So stay tuned for that in our, in our subsequent episode. The final caucus. The final caucus. Well, with that being said, thank you everyone for joining us. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. And we'll see you next week. Stay ranking. Yep.